The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the big three, the three topics that pretty much everyone's freaking out about, or at least is on everybody's mind. Uh, inflation, market volatility, recession. And if you've been watching the news, which we all have been, you'll see survey after survey of consumer sentiment, and it is going down, down, down. Gene has actually been saying this all along. Inflation, inflation, inflation. That's my Gene Chatsky <laughs> voice. <laughs> uh, and, and given the numbers, Gene, that came in last week on inflation, you have to imagine that consumer sentiment is not about to rebound anytime soon. Yeah, just the opposite, Soledad. Consumer sentiment dropped to a record low between May and June. We're seeing levels comparable to the levels that we saw during the recession of the 1980s. And you can blame high gas prices, rising interest rates, and yes, inflation, inflation, inflation. Did I sound like you for that? No, you sound like you. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're going to dig into what all of that means today. As many of you may already know, this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. We are fortunate each week to be joined by wealth planners and specialists from EFE, and this week is absolutely no different. Edelman Financial Engines Chief Investment Officer Christopher Jones is joining us today to talk about inflation, and later in the show, Wealth Planner Isabel Barrow will be returning. We want to talk to Isabel about what consumers can do to feel better about their own situation during these tumultuous times. If you are feeling more stressed out than usual about your own financial situation, first of all, you're normal. But, you know, maybe you're close to retirement. You can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can go to planefe.com. We got a lot of financial news over the last week, and none of it was good at all. I mean, it it was like waves of bad news, really, one following the other. And people are, are stressed out. So why don't we start with, with that, Jean? Walk us through some of the financial news of the week. Absolutely. So let's talk about the problem first. The problem underlying much of this is inflation. U.S. consumer prices rose 8.6% year over year in May. That's the fastest rise that we've seen in 41 years. And what's causing that inflation at such a fast pace? We're still dealing with supply chain issues that's worked to drive up car prices. We're dealing with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's got a lot to do with the prices of energy. 
these are things that we're going to dive deeper into on today's show when Christopher Jones joins us. But what inflation has done is set a lot of wheels spinning. This week, for example, we saw cryptocurrency prices, which many people thought crypto was going to be an inflation hedge like gold, particularly Bitcoin, because the supply is limited. Well, turned out not quite so true. Bitcoin is down 60% from its high in November. The total market for all digital currencies across the world has dipped below a trillion dollars. And just to put that into perspective for you, it was $3 trillion last fall. Simultaneously, the stock market had an incredibly volatile week. The S&P 500 fell into bear market territory on Monday. No surprise that I-bonds, which are currently paying more than 9%, are selling like hotcakes. And finally, there are gas prices. And let's just talk for a second about who's benefiting from the price of gas. With energy prices up about 44%, gas prices topping $5 on average nationally, you would be thinking that gas stations are making a killing. But in fact, Barron's wrote a story just this week. They did an analysis of over 135,000 of the gas stations in the country, and they're showing that is not the case at all. When prices go up, consumers buy less of the things that they don't actually need. And what they don't actually need are sodas and candy from inside that little store at the gas station. So you got to look at who actually is making money. It's the producers, the refiners, the pipeline operators. It's one reason that the energy sector has been such a bright spot in the stock market, that all of these companies are actually making money. And on Wednesday, President Biden sent a letter to oil refiners asking them to boost production to take some of the burden off already struggling consumers. But as we talked about last week, Soledad, refiners can't just flip a switch and ramp up output. So this letter from the White House seems like a little bit of optics to me. I have so many questions about gas, and I'm not sure we can answer all of them. Um, how much is corporate profits a problem? Or is it just, hey, when it times are good, the corporations have to make back that money that they've invested when the times, like in the pandemic, when people weren't using gas? How come there's gas prices that differ so broadly from state to state to state as opposed to some kind of consistency? Um, I just am always trying to understand how these all work because I think people drive up. I drive a SUV, right? So I'm putting $98 million in my tank every single time I, I fill up. It's insane. I mean, it is so crazy. And you're right. You're not going to run in and buy a candy bar. You're not buying a soda. You're not buying anything. You're going to complain about it and then drive home. But in my complaint, I don't exactly know who I should be blaming. Corporations are, are saying exactly as you suspected. You know, we took the hit when times were not so good. We are going to make our money now. This is capitalism. It's capitalism at work. You know, the taxes, I think, on gas are so, so interesting. I go back and forth on the weekends between my home in Philadelphia and a, a place that we have at the Jersey Shore, we always fill up in New Jersey, not just because they pump the gas for you, which, by the way, I still love, but also because it is so much cheaper to get gas in New Jersey because of the taxation. It is a complicated nut to crack. But let's 
open the lens a little bit and dig into the other questions about inflation that have been on our minds for the past few months. We're going to do that by bringing Christopher Jones from Edelman Financial Engines into the conversation to give us a little bit of perspective. Chris is Chief Investment Officer, and he leads the team responsible for investment analysis, financial research and development, portfolio management, data science and engineering, and so many other things for the millions of people who use EFE services. Chris is also an author. He is a well-respected and strong advocate for investor rights with policymakers and regulators in Washington, D.C. Chris, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Chris, here's where we are right now. As I was saying a few minutes ago, Consumer prices rose almost 9%, 8.6 year over year in May, fastest we've seen in four decades. Many people at this point are saying it's not over. The ideal rate, the rate that the Federal Reserve wants to see is 2%. So we are a long way from there, and, and we're feeling this in all sorts of ways. You used car prices wages, rents, hotel rooms, you name it. So as we look at what has to happen in order for the Fed to pull inflation down a little bit, can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, there are really two sides of the coin when it comes to inflation. There are things on the demand side that are driving prices up, and there are things on the supply side that are driving things up. And we've got issues on both sides of the equation right now. Uh, as you mentioned, we're a long way from the target rate that the Fed has historically put a lot of emphasis on, which is 2%. And the challenges are, are myriad right now. We have a lot of supply chain issues that are affecting supply of certain goods. We've got a very tight labor market, which makes it hard for employers and, and businesses to hire people on time. It's also being challenged by a surge in demand. We've got a lot of people with a lot of money to spend who have accumulated savings over the course of the pandemic, who are looking to travel, who are looking to buy new goods. And all of those pressures are really pushing prices up. When we look at the things that move inflation, it's that last thing that I think gets maybe even trickiest. People talk a lot about inflation expectations and how inflation expectations can actually cause more inflation. Can you explain that? When we make decisions about whether to buy something or whether to hire somebody, if you're a business owner, you're making those decisions with expectations about the future. If you think that prices are going to be higher, significantly higher in the future, that will change your decision making. And so one of the biggest things that the Fed is trying to get their arms around right now is expectations about future prices. Uh, in, in fact, that's one of the biggest thing the Fed actually does is, is affect how people feel about the future or what their expectations are about the future. And so what they're trying to do is to tamp down those expectations. And that's a challenging thing to do because the longer inflation is around, the more likely it is people will internalize it and make decisions that will change their expectations about how much prices will go up in the future. If you think they're going to go up, you're more likely to raise your prices. Similarly, if you think inflation is going to be muted, you won't necessarily change prices as quickly. It's an interesting game, right? Because it's dealing in how people feel and inflation's making everyone feel very anxious and antsy. 
And it feels like the Fed is saying, don't look over there. It's going to be fine, going to be fine. But some of what the Fed's trying to do does not seem to be working maybe as effectively as they thought. Talk me through some of the things the Fed has done and the degree to which it's working or not working. Well, the Fed is not omnipotent. I mean, they get to control money supply. They get to control the rates at which banks, you know, borrow and lend uh, from one another. But they don't really get to control the economy. They don't get to dial in exactly, you know, where employment's going to be or, or what GDP growth is going to be next quarter. They can affect it by making it easier or harder for people to borrow money and lend money. And they can change interest rates, the rates at which people are able to borrow and lend. And that gives them an indirect control over the economy. To the extent that they raise interest rates, it's going to slow down the economy, generally speaking. And to the extent that they are more relaxed on interest rates and monetary policy, they can speed things up a little bit. But they don't get to control it directly. And the lags in this system between their actions and what actually happens in the greater economy can be fairly lengthy, can be measured in months. And so they're not able to turn on a dime. They're not able to change things immediately, but they can exercise pressure and influence the way things uh, evolve over time in ways that uh, are directionally consistent with what they're trying to achieve. In this case, it's trying to slow down the economy a little bit, take some of those demand pressures off, uh, allow some of those supply pressures to work their way through, and hopefully that will lower prices. And in some ways, that's working. We saw demand for mortgages, for example. Mortgage applications are, are way down from where they were this time last year. But the Fed raised interest rates 75 basis points last week. It was a move that we have not seen in decades. And many people said it was a reaction to not doing enough soon enough to get in the way of what looks like maybe a recession heading our way. The Fed is trying to stave off a lot of things. It's trying to stave off a recession. It's trying to stave off this wage price spiral. Do we have a choice between inflation or a recession, or are we just going to get both? And by the way, we could already be in that recession and just not know it because of the timing on all of these factors that you were talking about. Well, it's certainly true that you often don't know that you're in recession until it's already here, though I don't think we're in recession right now. I mean, there are a lot of things that are going actually quite strongly in the economy. The labor market is in great shape. Consumer uh, balance sheets are in great shape. Corporate balance sheets are in great shape. Uh, we'll see how this develops and how quickly that might change. I don't think it's a stark choice between inflation and recession. It is a choice between slowing things down a little bit, taking some of the heat out of the economy and inflation. So to the extent that the Fed is successful in reducing prices, it will be successful by tamping down some of the growth pressures that exist currently right now, slowing down the labor market a little bit, slowing down the rate of growth uh, that we're seeing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean recession. A recession is typically defined as you know, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. We had a negative one in the first quarter of this year, but that was mostly because of statistical anomalies and the Omicron surge. We'll see what happens with Q2. The expectation is, generally speaking, it's going to be some modest growth. And most people, I think, if there is going to be a recession, are believing that it probably is several months away still. Probably something like, you know, early 2023 is when we would expect to see that. 
But of course, lots of things can change. We're in a very uncertain environment right now. So is the economy strong or is the economy not strong? On one hand, you were just talking about strong corporate earnings, feels like we're pretty close to full employment, Uh, wages are up in a lot of jobs that hadn't seen wage growth in a really long time. And yet, you know, we're talking about recession, inflation, and consumer confidence, you know, falling to the floor. So how is it possible to have a strong economy and also have a weak economy simultaneously? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And, and it is an, an interesting thing to, to try to reconcile. If you look at a lot of the traditional measures of economic performance right now, manufacturing, the employment market, et cetera, there's a lot of things that look very strong, that look really good. In fact, the best in decades in many situations. But sentiment, consumer sentiment, and of course, investor sentiment, as we've seen over the course of the last few months, is really poor. Now, why is that? Well, one of the biggest reasons is inflation. Inflation is really impactful on consumer sentiment. It makes people feel really crummy when they watch the price of gas go up, you know, a couple dollars a gallon at their local gas station, or when they go to the grocery store and all of a sudden their bill's 10 or 15% higher than it was the last time they went. It really has a big psychological impact, not just on consumers, but also on business leaders and CEOs. I mean, you've heard a lot of prominent CEOs out there talking about how worried they are about things. And it's largely because of the impact of inflation. Now, how does this get reconciled? Well, obviously, we don't know what the future holds. And part of what the Fed is trying to do is to tamp down some of the excesses in terms of the economy. They can affect things like the housing market pretty quickly. Raising interest rates will typically lower the the pace of the housing market quite a bit. Other parts of the economy aren't so sensitive to interest rates. And so it remains to be seen over the coming months how much of an impact these changes are actually going to have on the real economy. When you talk about consumer balance sheets being strong, I'm seeing headline after headline about how consumer debt is ticking up. Our credit card balances are ticking up and student loan balances and auto loan balances. I mean, we are taking on more debt in... 2008, this got to a point where it was really worrisome. Why is it not worrying people right now? Well, one of the interesting things about the pandemic was it caused people to, in many cases, pay down a lot of their debt. And in the wake of the great financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, a lot of people paid down debt over the the subsequent years. So actually, the consumer balance sheet right now is in pretty good shape. Now, yes, it's true that people are starting to take on more debt with things like credit cards and so forth. But generally speaking, because of all the stimulus spending and all of the COVID relief payments that went out, for the most part, people are in pretty good shape. Now, it is a little bit uneven, right? We've got some folks at the bottom of the economic ladder that are going to be really struggling, particularly if the labor market starts to soften and people are laid off. But for the most part, debt is not a big issue. We are not in the same situation we were in back in 2008. We say a lot on this show that the economy is not the market. There's a difference between the economy and the stock market, and you have to look at them differently. The the market's been mostly down. The S&P 500 is in bear market territory. Tech stocks have gotten creamed. What's the market play right now with all of this uncertainty? Well, the key thing to understand about the financial markets, both the stock and the bond market, is that they are forward-looking. They are trying to figure out what's going to happen, not what's already happened. 
And so often there's a big disconnect between what you see going on in the stock market and what you see going on in the real economy. For instance, right now, the real economy is in pretty decent shape, all things considered, in, in most dimensions. But the stock market has been going through a fairly significant you know, correction. We're now officially in the bear market. And the reason for that is the stock market is thinking about what's going to happen over the subsequent months and making predictions about that. And the predictions are we're in for a period of slowing economic activity. And that's going to put pressure on things like corporate earnings. In addition to that, interest rates have gone up. And so that means that a dollar in the future is worth less than it used to be because it's going to be discounted at a higher rate. And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing valuations and stocks come down is because the price earning multiples that people were willing to pay, they're no longer willing to pay them anymore in a world where interest rates are higher. And so it's causing people to kind of reevaluate their valuation of companies. I think, for instance, with tech stocks, which had some pretty gaudy multiples six months ago, a lot of those have come down quite significantly. To what degree does uncertainty and maybe uncertainty could also be called fear, just full on fear, play a role in how people think about the market and also think about the economy? But I'm always curious how people being afraid and the uncertainty being there impacts all of these markets. Obviously, it's what the Fed is trying to do, right? Bolster how somebody has this amorphous feeling uh, and it's it's hard to make people feel good when you're paying almost you know six bucks a gallon of gas, frankly. Yeah, well, it's an interesting dance right now because actually the uncertainty and the volatility that we see in financial markets is probably helping the Fed achieve its goals right now. So, to the extent that people watch what's going on in the stock market and feel less wealthy, they're a little less likely to go out and buy that new car or to buy the new house or to buy furnishings or whatever they're thinking of doing. And that will lower some of those demand pressures that are driving prices up so much right now. It's kind of an interesting paradox. I mean, yes, consumer sentiment and investor sentiment are huge factors when it comes to uh, how the economy actually performs. If people are optimistic and feel great about what the future holds, they're much more likely to spend money. They're much more likely to take on new debt and new risk and so forth. And the flip side is also true. If they're uncertain about the future, they're less likely to do those things. The fact that we're in this environment right now where fear is pretty high probably means we're in a period where inflation will come down. Now, exactly when and by how much is anybody's guess, but those are factors that are likely to reduce prices in the future. Can I ask you a follow-up to that? I'm always curious the degree to which social media, that didn't exist what, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Like, how, what kind of a role does that play? Right. Again, we're talking about this amorphous vibe of how you feel about something. And, and I, I think social media has really changed how people just feel about consumer confidence or about how the economy is doing versus 15 years ago when you just didn't have that kind of conversation happening um, in a massive way with people you don't know, but all talking about something that's anxiety provoking. Have you seen, I mean, you've been doing this a minute. You must see a big difference in in how this goes. Yeah, I, I think social media is playing a powerful role in society right now, not just in the economic sphere, but just broadly. It, it tends to be an amplification device, and, and that can go in both directions, right? It will amplify negative feelings and concerns and fears that people have, it can also amplify the positive stuff and the euphoric sorts of things. I mean, you remember 
a few months ago, all of the uh, the stuff we were hearing about meme stocks, about how people were piling into these you know, little known companies and driving their prices up to stratospheric levels. That's that is to a large extent a function of social media. I don't know that that would have been something that could have even happened 20 years ago. Uh, there just wasn't the mechanism for that many people to self-organize and, and take on a, a mission like that. It's one of the interesting questions that I think economists are going to be wrestling with for years, which is to what degree is the, the influence of social media actually driving real economic activity? Or trends. I think the, the effect is real, but it's not easy to measure. And of course, it can change very quickly. Let's put meme stocks off to the side for just a second and talk about your retirement portfolio. If you are nervous, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're fearful, whichever whichever word you want to use. And whichever you're thinking, word. And they're all the same they're, they're, word. Right, exactly. All, all synonyms. <laughs> What are we doing at this point? I mean, the, you know, there's that famous saying, buy when there's blood on the streets, especially when it's your own. And what? Wait, you wait. heard this. You Whoa. have heard this. No. no, yes, you have. What? Okay. Didn't you ever see Inside Man? <laughs> I, yes, but I'm bad at remembering what lines in movies. Jodie Foster said it in Inside Man, but she was quoting, I think it's, I think it's Rothschild. I think I have never heard that. But say it again. Buy when there's blood on the street, especially when it's your own. Yeah, and and I'm I'm stealing by the way from my my friend Karen Feinerman who who's on CNBC all the time, and she loves this saying, and she said it so often that I I'm I have picked it up. It. From I like her. it. Um, but but basically, it's buy low, sell high. When things are down is when you are supposed to get really brave and sell and. You know, Warren Buffett said it another way. When others are greedy, be fearful. When others are fearful, be greedy. All the same thing. But it's really, really, really hard to do. It is. And for legitimate reasons. You know, one of the big challenges with investing is dealing with this kind of uncertainty that we're actually experiencing right now. It's easy to say, be a long-term investor and, and don't pay attention to the day-to-day -day ups and downs. And, you know, if you look over 40 years, markets go up much more than they go down. But when you're in one of these situations like we're in right now, it's emotionally quite challenging, even for the most astute and experienced professionals, it can be quite challenging. And the fundamental thing about markets that, that folks need to understand is that this is the kind of risk that we get paid for taking. This is what stock markets reward you for in the long run by taking on this kind of risk. And it's uncomfortable. And there can be situations where it's actually financially quite uncomfortable to stay the course, right? If you lose your job or all of a sudden your mortgage payment has gone way up, those are real effects. They have a real impact on your day-to-day -day life. And luckily, most people are just going to watch their 401k balance go up and down or their brokerage statement go up and down. And it might not have a dramatic impact on their day-to-day -day lives. But I think it's important to acknowledge that the emotional aspect of investing is real. Uh, people really do struggle with this. I think you made a really good point that this is why financial advisors get paid to do what they do. If you are losing your nerve, this is a really good time to talk to somebody. And if you have somebody to talk to, that's great. If you don't have somebody to talk to, you can always reach out to one of the wealth planners from Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com because sometimes we just need our hands held.
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this money is emotional, right? It is a big part of your life. It's something that drives very strong emotions, positively or negatively. And sometimes having an, an objective external opinion or a coach, somebody to coach you through these kinds of situations can be really valuable. You would not tell people get out of the market. Because I do think there are going to be a handful of people who say, you know what, it is too emotional. It is too scary. I am very worried. Cut your losses, take what we got left and just get out. Well, no, I, I would not be telling people to to get out of the market here. I, I think the most important thing that, that you should take into consideration is what is your time horizon? If you are going to need all of this money three months from now to spend or, or buy something big, then okay, maybe you don't want that kind of money invested in the stock market, given the level of uncertainty that we're in right now. But that's not the typical case. Most people have time in front of them before they're actually going to be spending that money down. And if that's the case, these little blips, and I don't want to diminish what we're going through right now as little, but in the grand scheme of things, when you look over decades of economic history, these are not really meaningful, big events. They, they sort of wash out in, in the longer term perspective. And so if your time horizon is measured in, in years or decades, you really don't need to worry too much about the ups and downs of a given day or a given week or even a given few months. In the long run, equity markets provide a risk premium. They provide expected returns that compensate you for taking on this risk. And as long as you're in a situation where you're not going bankrupt or running out of money, you're in a situation in most cases where you can take into consideration some of that risk and, and live with it and benefit from those long-term expected returns. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. We are hopeful that you'll join us again. we got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Isabel Barrow. She's a wealth planner for Edelman Financial Engines and a frequent guest on our program. This is Soledad O'Brien, joined by Gene Chatsky, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. Those who've built their own financial success know that moving forward requires not just the right tools, but an in-depth knowledge of how to use them. That's why Edelman Financial Engines gives you a dedicated wealth planner supported by a team of experts. By combining human insight and advanced technology, we provide a truly tailored experience to your needs and goals. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to get your complimentary financial plan. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien. Given all the news in the last week, we wanted to focus in on the topic that is causing so much financial stress for so many people. Inflation, of course. Every week we are guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. If you're interested in talking with a wealth planner about your situation, you can call them at 833-PLAN-EFE. You can also visit planefe.com. Today, we are joined by Isabel Barrow, a wealth planner from Alexandria, Virginia. And Isabel's going to help us take what we learned 
from Chris and apply it to our own personal economies. Isabel, welcome back to the show. Nice to see you. You too. Thanks Hi, Isabel. Great Hi, to Sunshine. have you. Hi, so, so since everybody's freaked out about inflation and we like to focus on personal economies, let's do that transition from inflation in the macro to what it means for you personally. What information, what data should you be really looking at, measuring, investigating when you're trying to say, Okay, we understand this bigger conversation about inflation, but here's the part of it that actually is impacting my personal finances. Right. Our own personal economy, our own personal rate of inflation. And I think it's important also to think about what is inflation. I mean, we read about the CPI and and we understand in general what inflation is, but what is it really broken down into? Well, first of all, there's eight major groups of goods and services that are broken out into this calculation for inflation. It's food and beverage, housing, apparel, transportation, medical care, recreation, education and communication, and then an other category. We are all impacted in some way by those different measures of inflation, but it's all lumped together in this one inflation number, right? So inflation has, in some ways, a positive impact in the sense that as a Social Security beneficiary or a military or a federal civilian retiree, that inflation number might actually mean that you are getting a cost of living adjustment or a raise over time because they're tied to the CPI. And it also describes the average consumer. And you really need to think about yourself. And you may not be falling into that average category. Because, for example, if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage, your principal and interest portion of your mortgage, well, that's fixed. That's not going to inflate. But some portion of it may in terms of your taxes or insurance on that mortgage. So it's just starting to really think about what are the areas in your life where you're spending money that are maybe inflating at different rates. It's such a good point about the cost of living increase that you might get. Social Security recipients are getting the biggest hike than they've gotten in quite some time. And next year's is supposed to be even bigger, which is great for people who rely on that. Your other point, too, about if you own a home, that portion of the index is not impacting you. If you don't have to go out in the market and shop for a car, used car prices have really driven up the inflation rate. So that's not impacting you. So you got to look at it personally and try not to panic. But if you are feeling it, what are some strategies that we can all use to bring our own personal inflation rates down? Well, the first thing is to think about some of those Areas where we do know that are greatly inflated right now and considering scaling back on those. And I'm talking about things like travel. It may not be the greatest time to go out and buy airline tickets and plan a big trip. Maybe thinking about not buying the new house or maybe it's even time to think about is it a good time to sell and downsize? So there are some immediate things that we can think about reducing our own personal inflation rate. I think it's important to really keep that cushion in mind. If you know that inflation is 8 or 10 percent, make sure that you have a little bit of an extra cushion in your budget. And that may mean scaling back on some things that are more discretionary. You know that you need to spend money on gas and food and your mortgage and utilities. Look at the things that you could potentially give up or cut back on. And maybe it's subscriptions to movie channels or music, you know, whatever. 
think about doing some of those things now proactively to be prepared. And that also goes for building cash in your cash reserve. Maybe this is a good time to start really actively building up that cash reserve for that potential future need. You know what? It's a really good time to do, Soledad. And I I wonder if you're doing this because I'm catching myself doing it a lot. Use your frequent flyer miles. Yes, yes. And also, you were just talking about used car prices. We're buying the car we've been leasing because it's a good little safe car for the kids. And the idea of leasing a new car is so expensive. It's actually incredibly inexpensive to just buy the car we're leasing. Yep. And, and they want it back so they can sell it to somebody else. So. Or more. We did that. We bought the car off my husband's lease and then sold it. Right. The, the car lease hack. So basically, the way that these leases work is your residual value is built in when you go to start that lease. So you've already set the price, what that car is worth in three or four years whenever the lease is up. So given the massive inflation and used car prices, it might be a lot less than what you could go and buy that car for as a three-year, that exact same car off the dealer's lot the next day. So even if you don't want the car... Maybe it's a good idea to buy out the lease and then turn around and sell it. Mm, I like that. I didn't think about selling it because I actually need a car with the kids. And if I sell <laughs> you it, have to get another car. Then I have to get another car. And have we mentioned they're incredibly expensive right, right now? <laughs> Used cars up something like 40%. But there are other things that we can think about doing as well. For somebody who's maybe a pre-retiree, getting ready to retire or thinking about it, I mean, that really may mean if your expenses are going up a lot more than you anticipated, maybe that means you're going to be pushing back retirement by a couple of months or a year. Talk to your advisor. Find out if you have taken inflation into account when your financial plan was being built. Can you afford these new expenses that you have if it goes on for a couple of years? And if not, that's when you may want to consider pushing back retirement if you need to. Another thing to think about is we talked earlier about Social Security and the big increases potentially in Social Security and cost of living adjustment in the coming years. A great way to take advantage of this is if you haven't already taken Social Security, maybe you consider pushing it back because the longer you wait to take it, the more you get. And now that cost of living adjustment is going to be based on the new higher amount. I think this is all really good advice because, again, it allows you to focus on the the data points around inflation that are actually affecting you as opposed to feeling overwhelmed by the data points that have nothing to do with the way you're living your life. It's true. And, you know, it, it's interesting because when we think about inflation or historically when we've thought about inflation, we'll look at everything and say, OK, it's a three or a four percent inflation rate. But we have something over here like health care or long term care that inflate at six or seven percent or education that inflates at a higher rate. But interestingly, right now, for those who have a big proportion of their expense going to healthcare, healthcare has only increased at about a 2% rate as compared to everything else. So it really is important to think about your specific, I'll call it budget, day-to-day expenses and what exposure you have and what it could mean for you in the future. And talk to your advisor about whether or not you need to make adjustments to your financial plan because of it. So far, we've been talking about inflation at a national and a global level and for our own personal economies, because Soledad and I, we like to do a little bit of me search on this show. <laughs> Look at we you. want With to... all these new phrases, Jean has me search. I love it. Yes. <laughs> I'm stealing that one to me search. Really, when it comes to inflation, 
that is kind of what it's about, right? How is it affecting you and how how do you feel about it? And what is the impact going to be on your personal economy? Exactly, because it's different for everyone, which is why it can be helpful to talk to a wealth planner about your personal situation. Each week, we're joined on this show by wealth planners from Edelman Financial Engines. They work with clients every day to talk about their very distinct personal needs. If you're interested in working with or talking to a wealth planner, you can give them a call at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can visit planefe.com. We've got Isabel Barrow with us today. She's a wealth planner from Alexandria, Virginia. So, Isabel, let's let's talk about inflation in the context of our investments. How, how have stocks traditionally been thought of when it comes to helping us weather inflation? Typically, stocks have actually been one of the best investments to help protect your wealth through periods of time of inflation. You know, we tend to, I don't know, get hammered on ads on TV or on radio for things like buying real estate or buying gold. But in fact, you know, even during periods of time of of huge volatility and inflation like what we're experiencing right now, it's important to remember that we should be focused on the long term. And in the long term, stocks have historically been the best way to combat inflation. Um, and it's also important to remember that down markets are actually a, a great time to get in if you can. If you're a long term investor, this may be a good time for you actually to just start dipping your toe in the water with adding a little bit as markets are down. Um, so like I said, there are other areas that people are often talking about. It's it's real estate. It's it's gold. And those are areas where you may also want to be invested, but it's important to be invested in those in the right way. I love real estate investing. I'm a little itty bitty real estate investor and I find it fascinating. So what's the kind of advice you give around that? I think that people often run to real estate in periods of uncertainty because it's tangible, right? It's something that you can have. It's something that is yours. You can touch it. You can feel it kind of like gold. And, you know, if you're getting gold bullion, you can touch it. You can feel it. Um, And stocks aren't like that. You know, it's what do you have on paper? So it's natural, I think, to look at something more tangible, especially when we're in periods of time of volatility. And many of our clients at Edelman Financial Engines do invest in either residential real estate for income or corporate real estate for income. But it's important to remember that real estate returns are typically more in line with inflation-like rates of return. Because if you think about it, what somebody can afford, what they can get approved for on a mortgage is based on their income. And their income is typically tied to inflation. So the rate of return on real estate, especially when you take into account the taxes and you take into account the, the management and the repairs and the work that you have to do, it may not reward you as much as you may think, especially when compared to stocks over the long run. For our clients, we do invest in real estate, but we do so through real estate investment trusts. So REITs, they're known as, where you're getting a broad basket of income producing real estate investments, but through something that you can buy and sell in an exchange. It's a lot easier to own real estate through a REIT, um, and it's a lot less expensive. What I like about real estate is 
it allows you to really look at communities in the long run. What's being built here in a way that I never thought about before I started investing in real estate, right? What is happening here and how do I and how do I feel about it? And is it going to make my neighborhood better? And, and I mean, I just have really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun in a lot of interesting ways. So for you, and I think for many, it's about more than just the dollars and cents of it. It's the enjoyment. Maybe it's fun. Another thing we hear a lot during periods of time of inflation or, or inflation fears or any type of you know, market volatility is gold. It's marketed really heavily. Um, and it's important to understand what the true numbers are with gold. You know, if you're really thinking about buying gold as an inflation hedge, going back a really long time... The average return on gold is actually more like two or three percent. That's surprising because, again, you said you get hammered with these ads for gold all the time, particularly during periods of inflation. Right. Gold's going to save you because inflation is raging. Yeah. Yeah. And more recently, gold's done a little better. But over long periods of time, it has typically underperformed stocks. So, for example, between the uh, 1990 and 2020, gold returned 360%, which sounds great, right? It's not too bad for a 30-year return. But during that same period of time, the Dow Jones gained over 990%. Wow. So there's a big difference. And in addition, gold hasn't always done well when inflation is high. For example, gold actually fell in value during the inflationary period between 1980-1984. So even though gold outperforms inflation over long periods of time, stocks have really performed far better over that same era. And which is why we think it's a mistake to have a large proportion of your portfolio weighted to gold and would suggest that you avoid buying physical gold also because of the fees and the storage, etc. If you want gold, and you want to have that as part of your portfolio, gold, silver, precious metals, whatever it is, consider owning it, again, just like the REITs, through an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, where you're getting a broad basket of not just gold, but gold miners, et cetera, where you don't have to actually take physical receipt of the gold and pay all the fees to store it. Well, what about other commodities, Isabel? I mean, what about, what about copper? What about lumber? What about oil and natural gas? Similar to gold, Generally, most other commodities have outperformed inflation over the long term. But similarly to gold, the prices don't always go up when there's inflation. Individual commodities can be really volatile, really risky because they may move with other factors. You know, weather, for example, that can impact the price of of commodities. So something completely out of your control. So generally speaking, commodities have not performed as well as stocks, real estate, and even some bonds when it comes to keeping pace with inflation. But going back to, you know, the overall diversification of your portfolio, I think that all of these things should play a role in um, creating that diversified mix. And so what you're basically going back to this notion of a diversified portfolio of dollar cost averaging. I mean, it's it's. I don't want to say boring, but sometimes I think boring is just better, right? Boring, it, the, the the things that work, work consistently, not just in good economies, but in, in bad economies. And it's in times of volatility like this that it's so important to stick with them. It is. And, and marketers know that you're feeling nervous, that you're afraid of inflation, that you're worried about it. And you're looking for some like magic ticket, you know? 
And the reality is it doesn't exist. The magic ticket is ultimately that diversified portfolio and waiting over a period of time for volatility to be lessened. So there is not one right or wrong answer. It's having a little bit of all of those things, diversification, having rebalancing, dollar cost averaging, being a long-term focus, keeping your costs low within your portfolio. All of those things, which, yes, you're right. It's boring. It's boring to think about that, you know, it is can be so simple. And um, consistent. Mm-hmm. And consistency, absolutely. It's boring to think about it, but it works. And it works even better if you have someone to hold your hand and make sure that you don't do maybe the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. So that's when talking to an advisor or working with an advisor over the long term can really pay off for you. Um, And if you don't have an advisor or a fiduciary advisor, you don't know what questions to ask or you're thinking about hiring one. A great place to start is by talking to one of the wealth planners at Edelman Financial Engines, and you can reach us at 833-PLAN-EFE or at planEFE.com. If you find yourself watching late night TV and are thinking about having gold bullion (laughs) shipped to your home, may we suggest you call someone for a little bit of an intervention or at least a conversation about that gold bullion that's coming to you. I feel like that's very, very good advice. That's our show for today. If you want to have us answer a question on any topic you'd like us to discuss, uh, go to planEFE.com. And if you click on the Everyday Wealth page, you can leave us a message about that. If you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast there or you can actually go anywhere you get your favorite podcast. If you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll give the Her Money podcast a try. You can find it at hermoney.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. We'd like to thank Christopher Jones. Also, Isabel, thank you so much to you for being here as always. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Have a great week, Soledad, and have a great week, everybody. To submit a question or a topic suggestion, visit planefe.com and go to the Everyday Wealth page. And while you're there, you can download the podcast and browse over 100 audio clips and highlights from the show. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast. <laughs>